Clubhouse. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, in the context of the white supremacist insurrection that took place on Wednesday, January 6, 2021, where the Confederate flag was paraded around the U.S. Capitol building, and now with the threat of armed insurrectionists attempting to attack 50 state capitals starting this weekend. We speak with civil rights icon Bernard Lafayette. Mr. Lafayette was a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1960, but his activism began long before that. He lived through racist terror during the civil rights era. His thoughts, given the recent developments in the United States. Also, on the same day that insurrectionists were attacking the U.S. Capitol in downtown Los Angeles, two black people, one woman and one man, was attacked and beat by a mob of Trump supporters. We speak with Christian Angelo, who was one of those attacked by the mob, and that is for our ongoing series, Campaigners for Black Lives. Meanwhile, as COVID-19 continues its deadly march across the nation, California continues to be hard hit with over 30,000 deaths as a result of the virus. But very much underreported are the devastating impacts and wider implications of those who are incarcerated. And now, a COVID-19 outbreak at Chowchilla, a women's prison in California. Our guest is... Kelly Savage Rodriguez, who was incarcerated for 23 years and is now the Drop Life Without Parole Coordinator for the California Coalition of Women Prisoners. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The House has opened its debate on a single article of impeachment charging President Trump with inciting a mob that attacked the same chambers exactly a week ago. House Rules Committee Chair Jim McGovern. We are debating this historic measure at an actual crime scene, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the President of the United States. Passage of the article is virtually assured. It will make Donald Trump the first president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. This time, though, at least five Republicans and likely more will vote to impeach the president. They include the third-ranking Republican leader Liz Cheney of Wyoming. In a statement, Cheney accused Trump of betrayal in inciting the mob that stormed the Capitol last week. Cheney's statement said that, quote, the president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Oklahoma Republican Tom Cole, though, says impeachment is not the right course of action. Not because of the president's uh, inappropriate uh, and reckless words are deserving of defense, but because the presidency itself demands due process in the impeachment proceedings. Unfortunately, the majority's chosen to race to the floor with a new article of impeachment, foregoing any investigation, any committee process, or any chance for members to fully contemplate this course of action before proceeding. 
Cole suggested members be given the option of debating a censure of Trump instead. But McGovern said America was attacked and must respond. Rioters chanted, hang Mike Pence. As a noose and gallows were built a stone's throw from the Capitol steps. Capitol police officers were beaten and sprayed with pepper spray. Attackers hunted down lawmakers to hold them hostage or worse. This was not a protest. This was an insurrection. This was a well-organized attack on our country that was incited by Donald Trump. The New York Times reports that Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has told associates he believes Trump committed impeachable offenses and that he's glad Democrats are moving to impeach him, believing it will make it easier to purge Trump from the Republican Party. After hours of legal wrangling, the U.S. Supreme Court cleared the way last night for the execution of Lisa Montgomery. Early this morning, she became the first woman executed by the federal government in nearly seven decades. Earlier this week, a federal judge had found in favor of Montgomery, ruling she was likely mentally ill and couldn't comprehend she would be put to death. Her attorneys had argued that the rape and sexual abuse Montgomery had suffered beginning at the age of 11 caused severe mental illness. Montgomery killed a pregnant woman in 2004, cut the baby from her womb, and passed the child off as her own. Montgomery's attorney said after the execution that the craven bloodlust of a failed administration was on full display tonight. The attorney added, everyone who participated in the execution of Lisa Montgomery should feel shame. The U.S. has broken another record, 4,327 COVID-19 deaths in a single day. According to statistics compiled by the San Francisco Chronicle, California suffered 678 deaths from COVID-19 yesterday. Anyone flying to the U.S. will soon need to show proof of a negative test for COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said the order will take effect in two weeks. The U.S. is already facing a surge of coronavirus infections and new, more contagious variants are emerging around the world. The CDC says the tests won't eliminate all risk, but will slow the spread of the virus in the U.S., while more Americans get vaccinated. U.S.-bound travelers will need to get a test within three days of their flight. The state of Michigan plans to charge former Republican Governor Rick Snyder, his health director, and other ex-officials in the Flint water scandal. It's not clear which charges officials plan to bring against the governor and the others for devastating the majority black city with lead-contaminated water and causing a deadly outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Snyder was governor when state-appointed managers in Flint switched the city's water to the Flint River as a cost-saving step. The water was not treated to reduce corrosion, causing lead to leach from old pipes in the system used by nearly 100,000 residents. Lead can cause permanent brain damage in young children. Top Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny says he will fly home to Russia over the weekend. The decision comes as the Russian prison service has announced it will seek to put him behind bars for allegedly breaching the terms of his suspended sentence and probation. Navalny has been convalescing in Germany from an August poisoning with a nerve agent that he has blamed on the Kremlin. Navalny has been convalescing in Germany from an August poisoning with a nerve agent that he has blamed on the Kremlin. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Millions of people across the United States continue to be on edge 
after one of the darkest moments in recent history. On Wednesday, January 6th, a well-organized insurrection, including mobs of far-right Donald Trump supporters, stormed the U.S. Capitol buildings, the House and the Senate. Not only did they interrupt and delay the congressional counting of votes, for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris in the Electoral College. They also attacked and beat Capitol Police and verbally abused elected officials. Indeed, uh, it is said that they had intention of harming elected officials. Five people died as a result of the insurrection and dozens were injured. In response, House Democrats are set to vote today, Wednesday, January 13th, to impeach Donald Trump, charging him with incitement of insurrection. Yesterday, on Tuesday, the House voted on a resolution urging Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Donald Trump. However, Pence formally rejected calls for him to invoke the 25th Amendment to initiate Trump's removal from office. Now, the political stakes are at an all-time high as we find ourselves less than a week from the scheduled transfer of power to President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Biden and Harris are scheduled to be inaugurated a week from today, Wednesday, January 20th, in Washington, D.C., indeed, on the steps of the Capitol. But many are concerned that Trump's racist far-right base will carry out more insurrections against the peaceful transfer of power. As we speak, the Secret Service say that they are taking command of security preparations at the U.S. Capitol and other federal buildings. They're backed by as many as 15,000 National Guard troops, thousands of police and tactical officers, and layers of eight-foot steel fencing, this according to the Washington Post. This comes after the FBI warned of possible armed protests across the U.S. as Trump supporters and other far-right groups call for um, basically an insurrection. The agency also reported that armed groups are planning to gather at all 50 state capitals as well as in Washington, uh, D.C. Now, although Donald Trump is certainly on his way out. Many are concerned that the racist and far-right movement he spawned isn't going anywhere. Among those who stormed the U.S. Capitol building was a white man carrying a Confederate flag, a symbol of racism and hate. In the aftermath of the insurrection, several people of color have been physically and verbally attacked by Trump supporters. Racially motivated hate crimes are also on the rise against black people, Latino, and other communities of color. What lessons can we learn from the civil rights movement of the 20th century? Indeed, before we welcome our guest, we would like to go to a clip from the Guardian newspaper, um, basically about the pain and terror that black people have lived through in the United States with a specific focus on the Legacy Museum that uh, marks the thousands, the more than 4,300, some people say 6,000 uh, lynchings that took place across the United States. Let's go to that clip now. 
American South, we don't talk about slavery, we don't talk about lynching, we don't talk about segregation. We've actually littered the landscape with the iconography of the Confederacy, which we romanticize, we honor. And I think that has left us uh, vulnerable to replicating those features of white supremacy that we've actually never repudiated. This is the uh, entrance of the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And we have this icon uh, to just talk about this uniquely American challenge of being a nation that's recovering from the legacy of slavery and also being the nation with the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Montgomery, a city shaped by slavery, because in fact that is the history of this community. It's almost overwhelming how many of these people are, are represented. It's, it's sobering. And I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm, I'm glad my family, maybe glad is not a word I should use. I'm grateful that our story ended differently because all of these people, their story is much more tragic. People in this country were acculturated, socialized into seeing black people mistreated, abused, brutalized, tortured. And that optic becomes key to how we can sociologically get comfortable with the phenomenon of lynching. I think for African-Americans who were forced to remain silent about this violence, that's what terrorism can do. It can, uh, you know, many people were lynched because they complained about a loved one being lynched, and it would get them lynched too. And it creates a kind of weight, a kind of burden. You know, the black people that fled this region by the millions in response to this terror didn't go to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit. As immigrants, they went there as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. Henry Smith, 17, is a very famous lynching in Paris, Texas in 1893 because 10,000 people showed up to watch this lynching. And we had several of these public spectacle lynchings. John Hartfield was lynched in Ellisville, Mississippi. They actually advertise the lynching in the newspaper. And this accommodation of violence and terror was something that was frequent, which is why you would sometimes have hundreds or thousands of people celebrating their ability to exercise this kind of control over black people. And whether you were the person cutting off the fingers and mutilating the bodies, or you were the person enjoying your deviled eggs and lemonade while this spectacle violence took place, Something tragic is happening to you. People brought their children, they made their little kids watch human beings be burned or drowned or beaten. And um, I think that creates a kind of injury. And it has certainly created a disease where we've become indifferent to the victimization of black and brown people. And we have to treat that disease. Last month, when I got off work, there were two men in a black pickup with two huge Confederate flags flapping in the night following me home. They pulled over to the side and just looked at me. And I just looked at them. I guess it was an intimidation tactic maybe. I pulled off and I hauled down that street and they were behind me. This is in Gaston, 2018. 
I have very good neighbors. I just wanted to make it to my street. Went on past, once I turned off onto my street, that was it. The African-American community has lived this pain and live with it even still. When black visitors leave this space, they're going to go places where they're going to be presumed dangerous and guilty and have to navigate that. Uh, you know, even when they get their coffee at a Starbucks, uh, recent events tell us you can, be, you can be targeted. And so I think for people of color who have to live with this reality, experiencing it for a moment uh, should be something we're all willing to do. All righty, there you go. I would now, I'm really um, honored to welcome our guest, Dr. Bernard Lafayette uh, Jr. Uh, he was a student activist in the Nashville, Tennessee sit-in campaign of 1960, a longtime staff member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Committee. Uh, also, he worked uh, closely with uh, John Lewis, and indeed, throughout 1958 and 1959, in partnership with Nashville's SCLC affiliate, uh, Jim Lawson taught nonviolence techniques to Bernard Lafayette and his fellow Nashville students, including uh, John Lewis, James Bevel, and Diane Nash. Uh, now, prior to the Supreme Court's 1960 ruling in Boynton versus Virginia declaring segregation in interstate travel facilities unconstitutional, Bernard Lafayette and John Lewis integrated an interstate bus on their way home from seminary by sitting at the front and refusing to move. And, of course, Lafayette's group was attacked by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he met, uh, Dr. King uh, met with them and then negotiated on their behalf with the White House and the Department of Justice to ensure their protection in Montgomery and a military ex escort on their continued journey to Mississippi. Uh, Bernard Lafayette, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty. So, I, I wonder, let's start with your reaction to the image of the Confederate flag being paraded around uh, the Capitol buildings on January the 6th. Well, the uh, Confederate flag represents uh, you know, a group of people who feel that they have lost power and they're very much concerned. Uh, one of the things I think is very important is to study the history so that the future would not be a mystery. For example, the original Ku Klux Klan was not a racist organization. The original Klan was organized to make sure that white fathers took care of their children. So they... If they did not take care of their children, then that means the other white people, men, would have to take care of their children. So they wanted people to be responsible. And that's what the original, okay, plan was about. Now, they had a split and a difference among themselves when, uh, you know, the uh, change took place and you had blacks who were elected to office political office, and that's when the, uh, the split took place, 
and the uh, ones who split decided they were going to go after getting rid of these uh, black elected officials. That was the uh, motivation, you know, for them to do that. And the main reason is because they felt that they were losing power. Whether people are losing power or not, if they feel like they're losing power, then they take action. And this pattern has been uh, consistent throughout the world, other countries. So that's when we had the Confederacy and that sort of thing, etc. Yes, and this is why it's, it's not uh, only important for people to understand what people do and their behavior. It's important to understand why they behave such a way. What motivates them to do that? And when people uh, act in a violent way, it's based on fear, okay? Not courage, fear. So what is it people are afraid of? People are afraid that when you have a legislature, like the one we have now, that they're going to lose their opportunity to carry their weapons where they want to. That's one of the problems, is that fear. And there's going to be fear, the whole idea of people having uh, job opportunities or educational opportunities. They're going to fear uh, the resources that people uh, have now in terms of from the government, and they would lose. Now, these fears are not grounded in fact because all people are going to benefit from the change that we're talking about, and particularly poor people. And that's whether they're uh, black or whether they're Hispanic or whether they're Asian or whether they're white. Poor people are going to benefit from this government that we have elected now, and we can make sure that that happens. So... Uh, what is it that caused people to do that? I think the media can play a role here in helping people have more dialogue among themselves so that they can be able to fully understand what the change is all about. Because the people who carry the Confederate flag and all that sort of thing, et cetera, they want to go back to a period of history where they felt they had power. So, therefore, what they're complaining about is the fact that they feel like they're losing power, which is not the case. So there needs to be more dialogue. There needs to be more, more conversations about the issues that they are concerned about. Because that's how we brought about change, when we began to talk about the issues that concerned us. But we did not exclude, okay, white people who had uh, poverty conditions as well, like the Poor People's Campaign. Those were all people of different groups and different colors, different nationalities, different ethnic groups. It must be inclusive. So I think that there is a grave misunderstanding on the part of those people who are behaving the way they did at the, white, at the Capitol. There's a grave misunderstanding. And we need to find a way 
that we can have more dialogue and more interaction among each other to understand that what's going to benefit all of us. We are one nation. In fact, we have helped other countries and other nations come to this point. It's in our Constitution. It's in all of our laws and behavior. So I think that um, it's a matter of a lack of information on the part of large numbers of people. And I think we must pull together that um, leadership and we must be able to have clarity. Right. Let me ask you this, Dr. Uh, Bernard Lafayette. Um, going back in time a little bit, there's a lot of concern right now on the part of people of color. We're going to have a guest on after you, a young black man who was beaten in Los Angeles, on the street of Los Angeles, by some uh, white Trump supporters. There's a, a deep racist thread that runs through a lot of this. Now, your time of, of activism, of course, you continue to be active, active, but just in the early days of the civil rights period, the civil rights era, tell us a little bit about how, what you all did to survive the kind of racist terror that you were facing. I mean, you know people, uh, colleagues of yours who were killed uh, just for the civil rights work they were doing. Uh, Bernard Lafayette. Yes. I have friends who have suffered not only beatings, but people have been killed. The same night that Medgar Evers was killed, there was a three-state conspiracy to kill three of us in different places. Ben Elton Cox, who was a core uh, organizer, Congress of Racial Equality in Louisiana, Medgar Evers in Mississippi, and I was in Selma, Alabama, and they had a conspiracy, and the FBI told me this. It's in my book, In Peace and Freedom, A Journey in Selma. We suffered greatly, and I lost a lot of friends, not only those who were beaten up and that sort of thing, et cetera. There were those who were killed, like Medgar Evers, and... Martin Luther King, I was with him that morning when he was killed later. I'd been with him at the Lorraine Hotel because I was on the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he sent me to Washington, D.C. to do a press conference to open up the campaign. The last thing he told me is that he said, Bernard, the next thing we're going to do, he called me Lafayette, that we're going to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. So we have to talk about not just the problem, we have to talk about solutions. And what people have to learn is how to... uh, respond to those things that they fear. And in nonviolence, we teach people how to uh, fight for their rights, but in a way that does not destroy other people, but help to lift them up and help them understand that we are all one people. 
and we've got to be together as sisters and brothers. And in Martin Luther King always let people know that we are brothers and sisters, and we have to understand how to support each other. And I know that the, we as blacks, and I can name a lot of others who were killed in the movement and beaten in the movement. You know, we went through it. Um, but you got to have leadership. That's the key thing. Leadership that's going to be concerned about all people. Because unless we do that, we're going to have this uh, division among us. And well, there are also divisions this, among though, people of color. Right. Yeah, we can overcome that. That's the main thing. I, I know you, you only have a, a few minutes uh, more with us, but how did you, given the racist terror, and you know my cousin Martha Prescott, who has told me stories about being holed up in a church surrounded by armed racists from the, from the Klan with weapons, you all face that kind of terror day in and day out. You knew, as you just said, friends of yours were beaten, people were killed. What kept you going? How did you keep it together? And this is important, I think, for, for people to hear right now, because we are worried and facing um, really what a lot of people describe as modern-day lynchings and a kind of a racist terror against us. How, how did you get through it? Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette. The way we got through the uh, terror and the racist uh, behavior and that sort of thing was, number one, understand where it's coming from, why people behave that way. The next thing is do not uh, understand the purpose of that particular action is to cause you to have fear and not to even seek to bring about change. So that right. in addition to understanding, you also have to have courageous uh, response to that kind of behavior because the purpose of it is to cause you to stop what you're doing. And what you're doing is right, and you do not allow a force of violence to stop you. I'm proud of that uh, uh, legislation we have because they are continuing in spite of all of that. And and I know it's it's to even imagine someone would attack the capital of the United States of America, but you got to understand why. And frankly, I'm still doing my study on why this happened, how it happened. And what was the expectation as a result of this happening? Now, that's the thing you got to study. What do they expect to happen as a result of that attack? Then you got to make sure, uh, to answer your question, that you have the courage to stand up, okay, and not allow them to achieve that purpose. Right. Uh, okay, well... Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, we hope to uh, call on you again. Um, we are I know you have to dash. We are going to have to leave it there. Um, Dr. Lafayette has served as the Director of Peace and Justice in Latin America, the Chairperson of the Consortium on Peace Research, Education, and Develop 
meant he is an ordained minister, um, earning his bachelor's from American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee, and his uh, EDD from Harvard University, and he served on the faculties of Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta and Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was dean of the graduate school. He was also principal of Tuskegee Institute High School in Tuskegee, Alabama, and a teaching fellow at Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, thank you so very much. We know uh, there are a lot of calls on your time. Uh, so we appreciate you spending this time with you, and we hope to continue our conversation at another time. Thank you so very much, and please stay safe and well. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the work that you're doing to make this happen. Thank you. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break, and when we return, um, the latest, um, blow up of COVID-19 uh, in a women's prison in uh, Central California. And also, we will speak with Christian uh, Angelo, who is one of the people beat up by a racist mob of Trump supporters on the streets of downtown Los Angeles. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Our first guest, uh, Bernard Lafayette, was a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he gave us some very strong words. He said um, that we cannot back down, we cannot uh, lose courage in the face of the threat of violence. And, uh, of course, this song, We Shall Not uh, Be Moved, very reminiscent of the words that Bernard Lafayette uh, left us with. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. Check out our website at www.SoTrueRadio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. We're also worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Washington, uh, D.C. And internationally, we would like to give a shout-out to our SoundCloud listeners in Japan. Uh, we are now going to turn our attention to a lot of concern about what is happening with uh, COVID-19 across the nation, um, where death, deaths are creeping up. Uh, heading to 400,000 people across the nation. In California, at least 30,000 people have died. In Southern California, things are very, very dire. Uh, but what is very much underreported, what is happening uh, in uh, prisons? And I'd like to welcome our guest, Kelly Savage Rodriguez, is the new Drop Life Without Parole coordinator 
for the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. She was recently released from prison at 46 years old. She was incarcerated for 23 years. Governor Brown commuted her life without parole sentence in December of 2017, and she was finally released on parole in November of 2018. As a domestic violence survivor, um, Kelly was forced to experience the similarities between domestic violence and the violence of incarceration. She was an inside member of the California Coalition of Women Prisoners, known as CCWP, for 15 years and helped initiate CCWP's organizing to end life without parole campaign. Kelly Savage Rodriguez, welcome. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for allowing this platform um, about COVID. It's such a dangerous time inside. It means a right. lot. So tell us what is happening with this massive outbreak at the Central Valley uh, Women's uh, Facility. I earlier said it was Chowchilla. Was it at Chowchilla or um, it, another it's facility? CCWF, um, the Central California for Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure that was correct. So what's going on there, Kelly? Um, so unfortunately, the cases in the last um, about three weeks have really spiked, um, going from having a couple hundred uh, on quarantine, you know, monitoring the situation due to staff um, having uh, positive cases to um, having over 600 people actually test positive. Part of it is due to the fact that there's not a consistent um, policy of testing that shows how the numbers change. Um, but sadly, across the state, we're losing people left and right. Three weeks ago, we had 100 people pass. And those are, you know, important real numbers that we need to think about. But now, as of today, we're at 164. Overnight, we lost two more. It, yesterday, we lost 10. I mean, that's a huge numbers across the entire state um, that we need to look at. But at CCWF itself, um, the numbers are, are becoming very dangerous because they're not doing a good quarantine process. Um, they just allowed people to come in from the county jails after CDCR said no new intake would be um, processed. And we, we've got new intake happening. So it's really dangerous to keep allowing that to occur. But unfortunately, they're not listening. Um, we're trying to get basic care for individuals who are sick. We have individuals who have no electricity in their room because the rooms used to be designated as a um, special form of punishment, um, so they couldn't have um, anything but the lights, um, the overhead light. And so someone who has an active case of COVID who maybe needs some hot tea because it's really cold and rainy, um, we, you know, we want to make sure that they have basic comfort. They don't even have that because they can't even access hot water. Um, that Those kind of conditions are really, uh, you know, um, extreme and beyond cruel and un, un, unusual punishment because 
someone, you know, we think about the basic cold and just trying to get, you know, some type of comfort, you're not even seeing a doctor. COVID is such, you know, it's more of an extreme situation, and yet they're not seeing mental health. They're not seeing medical. You know, if you're quarantined, you can't use a phone to let your family know you're okay or find out if your family is okay on the outside. Um, So there's so many more things um, that need to be addressed, especially um, at this institution, because the number is spiking so drastically. Yeah, that's more than 25% of the population. And we were reading reports that the the unit, that um, the quarantine areas, are basically filthy. And that this exacerbates the breathing problems for those with uh, COVID-19 and that quarantine unit don't have access to the disinfectant and cleaning supplies, though those items are absolutely essential. And the other part of that, too, I was reading recently that some of the disinfectants uh, that are being used um, for people who have asthma is dangerous for people who have asthma because it, it can trigger an asthma or other uh, respiratory issues. So, uh, you know, I mean, not having disinfectant or cleaning supplies at all, but it seems as though if they did have um, disinfecting and, and cleaning supplies, they needed uh, to use the non-toxic types that work wouldn't trigger um, asthma and other respiratory issues, which we know is very high among people of color and women of color and some of whom are bound to be in that facility. Um, your thoughts, uh, Kelly Savage Rodriguez. Oh, definitely. So how we had a, a panel about um, COVID and, and what the effects were and um, how people were being treated in the facility. And immediately thereafter, this was um, with Tom Lager, Assembly Member Tom Lager, um, having a conversation about people who had just actively gotten out of the institution and explaining that, you know, having cleaning supplies were almost non-existent. Well, when that was happening, we had, um, at the same time, were receiving reports um, the day after, some, some up to five days after, where staff had informed them that they were taking all the cleaning supplies out of their room. And I understand that for safety and security, some situations need to occur to, to minimize um, access. However, not denying every single part of basic care is unacceptable during a pandemic. So they took out um, access to a broom, but you're eating in your room because you're on complete isolation. So you don't have a broom to clean up after yourself. You don't have even Comet to to clean up the sink areas, um, that kind of thing. And you have eight people per room. So this is a really difficult um, process to try to get um, CDCR to understand. There has to be a middle ground. Staff at this point, yes, I, I understand they're overworked, all that. They're having to serve um, food. They're having to, you know, ensure that people, um, you know, are safe in their cells. But at the same time, they need to provide multiple uh, times a day that people can clean their rooms, especially when you have eight people in a, in a room who can't socially distance, some who are um, having active cases, some who are asymptomatic, and, and some who are 
absolutely just exposed and not positive. Having been tested and found that they are not positive, you should not be in a room with someone who has tested positive. If somebody right. has tested positive, they should be somewhere, you know, in a in an area where everyone tests as positive. Unfortunately, that brings about more problems because if everyone's sick, no one can help each other because they're struggling just to, to survive themselves. And so there's many difficult parts of the process, but unfortunately, they're not addressing any of it. They're just blanketly not providing basic care, um, having an opportunity to, um, you know, have little creature comforts. They're denying people access to some of their property. Not only are they denying access, they've lost a lot of people's property during the transition. And so these people are finally getting back to their units, not their own rooms, but um, back to regular units in the facility and finding out that most of their property is gone you know, uh, pictures and, and, and things that help them survive their time are, have disappeared and nobody's being held accountable. And so, um, you know, where they had that extra bottle of shampoo to clean their rooms with because they're not receiving chemicals to do it with, um, now they've even lost that. So it's just one more tactic. And for them to take the time to search through their things while they're sick is kind of not, I mean, it's definitely inappropriate, but it's kind of sadistic in a way. You come back and you had two blankets, now you only have one and you're sick and you can't even wash that blanket. It, some of these uh, procedures are, are definitely inappropriate and they are unable yeah. or unwilling to do anything about it. Just, just horrible, horrible uh, situation. And uh, we are also going to be doing a segment um, very soon about the sterilizations that are happening of, of women uh, who are in prison. But we, we are out of time. We are going to have to leave it, leave it there. But um, Kelly Savage-Rodriguez, for people who are concerned about what they're hearing and who want to be in touch with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners to find out what they can do, what should they do? So on our website, it gives you plenty of different um, ways to be a part of the action, contacting the institution, that kind of thing. So um, uh, California uh, Women's... Uh, California Women's Facility is just one of our um, facilities that we take care of. We also work with CIW as well, which is um, down south okay. in Central California, uh, or in, sorry, uh, Southern California. So you can um, support both institutions just getting on our website at womenprisoners.org. Okay, thank you so very much, and all the best to you. Uh, stay well and safe, Kelly. Savage Rodriguez. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Now, uh, wrapping our show up, we're going to return to this story the day of the uh, racist uh, riot insurrection in Washington, D.C. Uh, two black people that we know of uh, were beat by Trump supporters in downtown Los Angeles. And for our campaigners for Black Lives, we partner with Black Lives Matter LA. We want to thank them uh, for their work. I'd like to welcome uh, Christian Angelo, a racial justice activist based in Los Angeles in support of the Black Lives Matter 
uh, movement, and Krishna was maced and hit in the face by pro-Donald Trump demonstrators outside Los Angeles City Hall on Wednesday, January the 6th. Christian, thank you for joining us. Hi. I'm not... Yeah, Christian, are you hearing me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So tell us actually um, what happened here. In fact, let me do this. Let me play a clip that appeared in the news media, and then you could confirm to us if this is how the whole thing went down. This is a clip from CBS. The LAPD is looking into several fights that erupted in downtown L.A. during a pro-Trump rally yesterday. This after people have come forward saying the attacks were racially motivated. CBS 2's Joy Benedict has more from downtown. What may have started as a peaceful demonstration in downtown Los Angeles didn't end that way yesterday. And today, new heartbreaking images are surfacing from what many are calling racially motivated attacks during a rally in support of President Donald Trump. I don't understand what's going on with the world. I'm saddened by it. I'm heartbroken by it. Berlinda Nebo is the woman seen in these photos being assaulted. It's a shame that I can't walk down my street anymore. She says she was walking near the demonstration when she started being harassed by protesters. I'm walking by and they're yelling at me because of my color, calling me the N-word, calling me the B-word, saying all lives matter, black lives doesn't matter. Nebo says she yelled back and the crowd started following her and then it turned violent. He goes and smacks me in the face and then all of them start trying to jump me and then people jump in. These images were captured by freelance photojournalist Raquel Natalinkio. When they started pushing her around, this other woman that was a Trump supporter came up to her and ripped her wig off. Obviously, at that point, she began to try to defend herself. Natalikio covers many events like this, so she didn't want to show her face for fear of retaliation, but says she had to speak out. It's disgraceful. I think it's disgusting. We're witnessing the very real racism that still lives in our country today. Nebo says it was strangers who came to her rescue, including this man with the red beard. He was whispering in my ear going, you're okay, I've got you. I've got you. Don't do anything. These people are literally trying to kill you. In the process of him trying to carry her away from the crowd, someone sprayed pepper spray in her face and others hit her. But she credits him for saving her. It's not for him stepping in at that moment. These people would have literally tried to kill me. The LAPD eventually called an unlawful assembly. In all, six people were arrested, but none of them were arrested for assault or a hate crime. However, investigators have not ruled out further arrests. People of color experience things like this on a daily basis and are seldomly believed when they speak about it. Which is why Natalikio shot these photos and is hopeful to give not only this woman a voice, but proof that more must be done to send a stronger message against hate. It's real sad. We got to do better. We got to do better. Joy Benedict, CBS 2 News. So, uh, Christian Angelo, I'm not quite sure if uh, when you were attacked, this was in the same um, incident um, with uh, Belinda Nebo, and if what was reported actually, from what you know, if, if indeed it was the same incident, is that how it went down? Uh, Christian Angelo. Okay, so if there were two isolated incidents, and I believe it, she got attacked right before me. So, um, there were videos of her already 
And then there were videos of my other comrades who were getting assaulted. So I, that was before I had even took off to go. So I see that, and I, I take off right away. You know, this movement is very spontaneous, so we're always on standby. So I head out there in support of my comrades for Black Lives Matter. And next thing you know, I'm getting assaulted. Like, it, it was really all just a play because I just got off the bus, just walked in, and first thing I hear is, oh, hey, buddy, this isn't for you. So I was like, all right, um, they're going to give me problems. So, I mean, I was really just there to look for my comrades because, you know, no one is ever wants to roll alone. So um, I just keep walking in, but since I know they're against me, the, the whole park was full of Trumpers, that, that corner. So I keep walking in, and then I start flipping everyone off. And so, like, I mean, they know, like, not like there's nothing else for me to get in that face. Like, I'm just here to, like, look for my people or whatever. So I keep walking in, and some guy walks straight up to me and bumps into my Black Lives Matter sign. That's in my left hand. And so I, I turn, like, face to face towards him, and he's already, like, squared up to fight me. So, I mean, <laughs> I, like, like, it all happened so fast that before I could even, like, decide fight or flight, he had already punched me in the face once. And then, next thing you know, I'm getting maced from the side. And, it, like, it all happened so fast that I, I never even let go of my, of my Black Lives Matter sign to, like, fight back or anything. Like, they really just caught me super off guard. And so, after getting maced the first time, and punch, I run away because I know I'm about to be blinded. So I run a good distance away, and then as I turn around, I, I start getting bombarded by punches, and I, I don't even know how many times or who hit me, but I'm getting bombarded by punches as, I, as I'm turning around because I tried to run away, and there's like 10-plus guys right behind me, and they're all, like, ready to swing on me. So I started yelling at them, like, I literally done, I did nothing to you guys. I just got here, and I was just walking. And as I'm yelling at them, I did nothing. Then I get maced again. You can see it. There's some images that I received later. Um, you can clearly see one of the guys with the giant can. Looks like, looks like a can of bear, um, uh, like a, almost like a fire extinguisher on me. Like, it's, it's a really big can of damage. So then he gets me in the face again. And at that point, I just, um, I don't really know what to do because, uh, I mean, I was going to fight 10 guys and get lynched right there. But once it started to kick in and I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore, then I ran across the street to go to my comrades. And... It was just pain and agony from there for like the next two hours. Yeah, um, we, we just have about a minute or so, but uh, quickly, did you, uh, Krishna, at any point um, fear for your life? And the second thing I, I wanted you to address is we had Bernard Lafayette, a civil rights icon. He lived through racist terror 
in the South during the civil rights era. And one of the things he said is that we can't allow violence or the threat of violence to stop us. And I'm, I'm wondering, when something like this, you're totally traumatized, of course. And how will this incident impact you in terms of participating in a future Black Lives Matter protest? So just uh, quick thoughts on those two things. Christian. Uh, yeah, I was definitely in fear of my life at one point. That's why I, I was yelling at them. I'm not afraid to die for this movement right here right now. Because, I, I mean, I, I looked at them closely, even through the nationwide. I was looking at them and seeing that they were just all grown men in bed trying to cover their faces as best as they could. So I'm like, okay, these guys are here to just do damage and, and run and hide. Because the guys I found out um, was actually doing outfit changes. So yeah. it's like they're literally out here to hide their identity and hurt people. So I was, uh, right. I was definitely uh, in fear. I, I could have been easily lynched. And well, Christian, I, we're glad that you are, um, are, are safe. I mean, as uh, Belinda uh, was saying, these people, uh, they're out for blood. Um, we hope that you continue to stay um, well and safe. And uh, we will uh, keep in touch and find out more about how you're doing as time goes on. But we appreciate you coming and sharing this horrific um, but very, very real uh, story with us, Christian Angelo. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. All righty. We are out of time. I'd like to uh, thank all of today's guests. And um, the, our audio today show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Thank you for listening. And uh, y'all, please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Keep on keeping it what you love and you'll find that someday soon enough you will write.